Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job, if you would, and turn to chapter number one. Job chapter number one. And I really want to focus in on the last three verses of Job chapter number one. But in order to do that, we kind of have to get there. We've got to build some context and uh, understand the, the narrative and what's going on here. And so we're actually going to read the entire chapter of Job chapter number one this evening. And as you find it in your Bible, uh, just, just recognize we are looking at possibly the oldest book written in our, in, in our uh, book, uh, in, in our Bible, uh, certainly set in the time period of the patriarchs. And so if you want to think about it this way, Job is a character who lived on the before side of Christ as far as we are on the after side of Christ. Uh, this is an ancient book, and yet despite its uh, age, it is relevant for us today. I don't think I found a book more relevant to certain areas of my life than that of Job. Verse number one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect. The word perfect here in the Hebrew, it really is the idea of uh, maturity or completeness. Uh, perfect is not really a Hebrew concept. They don't really think of uh, someone being like, I mean, in their mind, one person is perfect and that's God. And so this, this word perfect, it, it means like perfected. He has, he has grown in spiritual maturity, spiritual completeness. Uh, he is, he's perfect. And then he's upright. This word here, upright, in the Hebrew, uh, really carries the idea. I think the best de- de- definition I have heard of it is that he seeks to do what's right no matter what the situation is. So he, he's, he's spiritually mature. He's seeking to do the right thing no matter what his circumstances may be. And he is one who feared God and eschewed evil. Now, both of these terms, we don't really use a whole lot. When we think of the word fear, we think of uh, like, like he's scared of. Their, their word fear here really means that he gives weight to. Uh, he, he, he cares deeply about God's opinion in his life. He cares deeply about the things of God. He gives weight to the things of God. He gives honor and reverence and respect. He feared God. And then eschewed, we just don't use that word at all anymore, but it carries more than just this idea of looking away from evil. A shoot is really the the Hebrew picture of it is to put out a fire, to snuff it out. So he's not just not uh, participating in evil, but he is actively trying to put out evil around him. Okay. So what a testimony in just one verse from our man Job. This is a spiritual man, but he's also a blessed man. Look at verse number two. It says, there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was also 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, I would encourage you, anytime you read ancient Hebrew literature, like what we're looking at today, tonight, when they use numbers like this, like, like a string of numbers, recognize that, that, when, that when they're using those numbers, they are uh, not just using them quantitatively. 
okay? We, we think of numbers as numbers because that's what they are, right? But in, in, in a, a literary Hebrew mind like that of the author of Job, he's using them in a qualitative sense. Uh, numbers had value. Uh, the number seven was this number of completion. God created the world in seven days. He rested on the seventh day. He, he, he completed his work. So the number 10 is this number of abundance that Job was living in abundance. So it's, it's not by accident that he has 10 children, that he has 10,000 animal workforce, that he has a 1,000 cattle, 10 times 10 times 10. Like what the author is trying to get us to understand is that in every measurable sense of the world, Job is a perfect 10, right? Like he's got life made. He's blessed. He's spiritual. But look at verse number four. It says, his sons went and fasted in their houses, everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them. And he rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So not only do we see he's a spiritual man and a blessed man, but we also see a man here who cares deeply about his family. A man who is praying for his family. A man who's offering sacrifices on the behalf of his family. He is caring deeply. He's invested in his family. Uh, what a man. We're going to skip verses 6 through 12 for now. Look at verse number 13. Where the Bible says, There was a day when his sons and daughters were drinking and eating wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The, the Chaldeans made about three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped escaped alone to tell thee while he was yet speaking. There came also another and said, thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and it smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and he rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Have you ever had a bad day? No, 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 like a, like a really bad day. Like one of those days where nothing went right, you know? Like a Monday, you know? Like, like you wake up and you just know from the get-go this is not going to go well today. Like I'm struggling already and it's 8 o'clock, you know? And, and so, man, you're, you're getting ready for work and, and like uh, the car breaks down the way to work and, and you, you got, you know, you, you get in that car, you turn on and it's on E, you know? And you live in California, so you know that's going to be a bad day, you know? And so you're just like, oh, no, this is just not going well. Like one of those days where like everything goes wrong and just when you're like, well, you know what? The only good thing is at least it couldn't get any worse, 
And then right then it gets like 10 times worse. You know what I'm talking about? Like one of those days where like you wish life was a video game and you could just hit restart, you know, like, hey, let's just restart this level, okay? Not doing very well here. You ever a day like that? Yeah, yeah. I think we've all had days like that. Uh, in fact, I brought someone to help me illustrate what kind of day I'm talking about. Uh, I told you what kind of books my wife reads this morning. These are the kind of books I read. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Yeah, yeah. You heard of this book? This is Pastor Sammy, this book's steeped in theology, man. I like this one. This one's good. It's written from the perspective of an eight-year-old, and uh, I like my man Alexander here. He says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on my skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while it was running, and I could tell it's going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because at breakfast, my brothers found toys in their breakfast cereal box, but all I found in my breakfast cereal box was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window, and Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed, but no one even answered me. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moho was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. Well, I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a, straw, a, a strawberry double-decker ice cream cone that the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and guess whose mom forgot to put in his dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was, because after school, mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, and I'll fix it, he said. Next week, I'll be in Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot, and while we were waiting for mom to go get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy, and when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for calling me a crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded just me for being muddy and fighting. I am having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I told everybody, anybody, no one even answered. There were lima beams for dinner. I hate limas. There was kissing on TV. I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes, and my marble went down the drain. And I had to wear my railroad train pajama. pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. You ever have a day like that? I identify with Alexander. We just say, yeah, you know what? That day could be summed up as terrible horrible, no good, very bad day. Yeah, I don't know what kind of days you've had. I've certainly had my fair share. But I don't think anyone in this room has ever had a day quite as terrible, quite as horrible, quite as no good, very bad as our man Job 
here in chapter number one. In a matter of moments, Job goes from the greatest man in all the East to the biggest sob story our world has ever known. One commentator puts it this way, the book of Job is seven verses of joy and 40 chapters of sorrow. It is a book of trial, a book of tribulation, a book of no good, very bad day. And the book of Job teaches us that bad things do indeed happen to good people. And yet, the book of Job also teaches us that while our problems may be supernatural, or whether our problems are natural, our enemy is the same. Because before Job's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, there's another day recorded in Job chapter number one. A day that Job himself was not privy to. In fact, Job never finds out about the first day in Job chapter number one. But it was a day found in verse six where there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that the there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one who feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the, the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, you better get ready to eat them words. Behold, all that he hath is in thy hand, is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. In other words, Satan apparently presents himself with these other angels before God. And God says, hey, Satan, what have you been up to? And Satan says, well, you know what I've been up to. I'm up to what I'm always up to. I'm roaming the earth. I'm looking for my next victim. I've got a target in mind. I'm trying to find the next person to accuse your goodness of and to accuse your lack of mercy to. I'm looking for the next person to pull down and find a stronghold to fit in. And the Lord says, well, that's all great. Have you considered my servant Job? And the Lord says, you always talk about Job like he's something special. Job ain't special. You've provided this hedge of protection around Job. You've blessed his life immeasurably. He's living in excess and abundance. Of course Job loves you. Of course Job fears you. Of course Job serves you. But if you took all of those things away, if you put some trial, if you threw him into the fire, if, if, you, if you put a, a suffering in his, in his stead, well, Job would curse you to your face. And God says, well, let's see how that goes. By the way, in chapter 2, God says, go ahead and touch his life. Job is struck with boils. His wife says, curse God and die. And Job still doesn't bow the knee to the enemy. He still stands faithful to his God. And here's the thing about what Job's story teaches us. It teaches us that our lives will not be measured by how bad our days get. Nor will our lives be measured by how many bad days we have. No, our lives will be measured by how we respond to the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. How do you respond when things don't go your way? What is your reaction 
to, to difficulty, to trials, to suffering. When you are sent through the fires of life, do you respond in anxiety, uh, depression? Is your response to kind of solitude yourself in, in a fortress of, of protection that only you can provide, blocking everybody else out? I wonder, do you respond in sporadicness, or do you respond in, in isolation? I wonder if, if you respond in, in kind of a, a pessimistic attitude. Well, now anything that happens that's good, well, that's just going to lead to a greater bad because everything's just wrong and the world's going to hell. How do you respond to the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? You know, maybe there's a lesson to be learned from Job. Because experiencing a far worse day than I've ever experienced... And again, going out on a limb, not knowing your stories, I'm going to say a far worse day than any of us have ever experienced. Job responded in a way that proves the thesis for his life, that he was a perfect and upright man, one who feared God and eschewed evil. Would you notice with me three reactions or three responses to a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. First of all, I believe that Job responds here in realignment, in realignment. Would you look at verse number 20? Job chapter 1, verse number 20. Then, that's a transition word. When I see the word then, I think the logical question to ask is when. So then when? Well, well when is right after the last messenger has spoken his last word of bad news, right? Like, this is not a few days later. This is, this is all happening in a matter of moments. These messengers have come in one right after the other. As they were yet speaking, someone's coming in. Like, this is the equivalent of your phone blowing up with texts and emails and phone calls all at the same time as people are barging down your door trying to tell you all this terrible stuff that's going on. And finally, the last guy gets out his last word. Hey, all of your kids are dead. Then... Job arose, and he rent his mantle, and he shaved his head, and he fell down upon the ground. Now, now the rending of the mantle, and the shaving of the head, and the falling uh, flat on the ground, like, like just, just completely laying flat on the ground, are all symbols of grief in this context. Uh, these are outward expressions of inward emotions. In other words, when, uh, when words couldn't paint how you were feeling, when words couldn't describe your inward being, you would rend a mantle, you would shave your head, you, you would fall on the ground, uh, oftentimes you, you would sit in ashes and wallow in the dust to identify that what you are going through is difficult. In other words, what I want you to understand is that Job's, Job's response here is not just like, well, ain't that just dandy? Hey, praise the Lord. Hey, strike up, the, strike up the band. Let's sing. Let's sing praises to God. No, no, no. Joe says, this hurts. This is difficult. This is not what I was expecting. I'm in pain here. My world has just collapsed on my shoulders. Everything in my body wants to cry out in anger and wants to cry out in hurt and wants to ask a million questions. And man, I'm hurting. And man, I'm grieving. But notice, this doesn't turn into a woe is me pity party for Job. Because verse number 20 ends with the fact that he worshiped. Now, worship is really a matter of worship. You worship what you deem worthy in your life. 
And so Job is saying, listen, despite how I'm feeling, despite my inward parts feeling like they're being ripped apart, despite it it feeling like God has put my life through a, a, a shredder, I still deem him worthy of my attention. Despite the pain, he is still worthy of my praise. He is still worthy of my gaze. He is still worthy of mine attention. And so, Lord, teach me. Like, this is a personal inward search for Job. Job is in grief. Job is in anguish. Job is what we would call lamenting here in chapter number one, but he is also inwardly searching himself. And in light of who he believes his God to be, he's saying as the psalmist in Psalm 139 will say, search me, O God, and try me and see my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in thy way everlasting. Because God, you're worthy of my attention. And so, Lord, I, I don't want to steer into a ditch here. I don't, I don't want to overcorrect and end up in another ditch. And so, Lord, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to teach me how to keep my eyes on your way, to make sure I'm going in the direction you want me to go, to, to make sure this trial is not, is not burning me up, but rather propelling me forward. Lord, I need you to teach me in this moment. Wow. You know, oftentimes when a trial hits our life, our first question is, come on, God, whose side are you on, man? I thought you were supposed to have my back. I thought you were that friend that never leaves us nor forsakes us, right? Like, like aren't you supposed to have Eric Getch's back? Aren't you supposed to be on my team? You know what? Maybe instead of wondering whose team God's on, maybe we should wonder whose team we're on. Maybe our response to difficulties and trials in our life ought to be, okay, Lord, let me reassess. Let me realign my heart to yours. Lord, teach me here how I can be led in your way, in your path. How can I respond to this situation in a way that would best please you? Now, that takes humility. It takes a great deal to cry out to the Lord in times of trouble, in times of anguish, and say, okay, Lord, Teach me. Guide me. As the psalmist says in Psalms 25, Lord, show me thy ways. Teach me thy path. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. Oh, Lord, I need to be taught by you. My flesh is failing. My heart is hurting. But you are still on the throne. So lead me, Lord. Wow. I love the Apostle Paul. One of the reasons I love the Apostle Paul is because the dude is like a genius. Like, he's smart. Like, he even testifies in his own, like, you know how, like, Paul, like, is, like, humble bragging throughout, you know, the Gospels and he's, or throughout his, uh, his epistles? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I studied under Gamala. Well, like, Gamala is, like, one of the most pristine rabbis of their day. Like, you didn't just, like, happen to study under Gamala. Like, you had to be chosen for that. Like, this guy knows his stuff. He had an open invitation to any synagogue in the country. Like, he, he graduated, like, magnum cum laude, you know? But yet, when he teaches... He puts stuff on the bottom shelf for people like me, who graduated magnum cum laude, you know? And, uh, and I like that. I like that about Paul, that, that his truths are simple to grasp. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul's preaching a message. I don't know what his uh, message is all about. I don't know what, what he would title it. I don't know what, what he's titling his message. But if I were to put a title on Paul's sermon in Romans chapter 8, it would be things that are true about life. Like, here's just some things that are true about life. 
He gives this first point in verse 22. He says, for we know that the whole earth groaneth and travaileth in pain. Man, point number one, life stinks. Life is difficult. Life is hard. Life has scars and bruises and hurts and difficulties. Life has trauma. Life has, has, has pain. The whole earth, it's the whole earth, and we're travailing. We're groaning in anguish and pain. And he goes on to talk about how that's because we live in a sin-cursed world with sinful people, right? But then he gives this second point in verse 28. And he says, for we know that all things work together for good to them who love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. So what does he say? He says, well, point number one, life stinks. But point number two, God is good. And because God is good, he is going to take point one, and he's going to work all that groaning, all that travailing, all that pain, and he's going to work it out for good in your life. Notice he doesn't say it's going to be good. He says he's going to work it together for good. Okay, now if you're a logical person, you say, well, that, that sounds great, but what good could possibly come from, you fill in the blank. Like what good comes from this diagnosis? What good comes from this death? What good comes from this hurt in my life? What good could possibly be coming for, from, from uh, a year like 2020, you know? Like, God, let's just admit, that one should have been flushed down the toilet, right? Like, nothing good can come from that year, right? Like, what good could possibly come from you fill in the blank? Well, did you know he gives you the answer? Paul just said it. He said in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. So the ultimate good that God is trying to work together in your life is he is trying to work together in your life the image of Jesus Christ. See, God desperately wants you to look more like Jesus. He desperately wants you to look more like his son. And so sometimes he has you walk through a fire to burn away the parts of your life that don't look like Jesus. Occasionally you'll have to face a storm to wash away the parts of your life that look nothing like God's son. And if you'll make it through, if you'll endure, if you'll persevere with patience and believing, with hope, well guess what? On the other side of that trial and on that difficulty, is an image more refined to Jesus Christ. He wants to grow you into the son, into the image of his son. Now, now I believe Job knows this. I don't necessarily know, th think he knew it was Jesus, but he certainly knows it because he says, he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Yeah, when I come through this trial, I'm looking more refined. I'm looking more precious. I'm looking more like what I ought to look. And so, man, I say all that to tell you this. Don't waste your bad days. Don't spend your whole day wishing it was over. 
Don't, don't, don't waste the, the, the terrible, horrible. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste the storm. Don't just hunker down and try to, try to defend until it's over. No, by the grace of God, walk through those days. Walk through that fire. Walk through that storm, knowing He's beside you, knowing that He's with you, and knowing that He's growing you into who you need to be. Don't waste the bad days. He responds in realignment. Lord, you're growing me. But he also responds in recognition. Job 1.20 contains Job's first words upon hearing, or first actions, rather, upon hearing this news. But Job 1.21 contains Job's first words upon hearing this news. Look at what he said. And said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, first of all, what wisdom. I mean, Job essentially recognizes the same thing Paul is going to guarantee when he says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is for certain we will carry nothing out. He says, man, man, I I came in naked. I'm leaving with nothing. Uh, Just as I came, will I depart? And so he says, in the meantime, in between the, 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 the birth and the death, all that I have, well, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, now that's real easy to say when the Lord's giving, you know. Yeah, the Lord gives. Let's just be honest, the Lord hasn't done a whole lot of giving here in this chapter. The Lord has done an awful lot of taking. And yet Job doesn't respond in covetousness. No, he responds in contentment. In fact, he responds in joy. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord had taken away. Blessed. That that, that word means, oh, how happy am I? I am happy beyond belief because of the name of the Lord. What? Job, you're not supposed to be happy right now. Job, you're supposed to be miserable right now. Job, now's the time you cry out to God and say, okay, God, give me, give me, give me. Okay, God, uh, you're supposed to shed grace and and you're supposed to, to, to give back. And so, come on, God, give away. You've taken, now give. But Job says, no, no, no. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken, but I am happy because of the name of the Lord. What's going on here? Well, let's find the common denominator in those three statements. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. What's the common denominator? The Lord is. And Job said, listen, you can take away my family, you can take away my treasures, you can take away my wealth, you can take away my cattle, but you will not take away my God. And as long as I have my God, I have reason for joy. I have reason for peace. See, maybe Job understood that his life wasn't about the 401k. His life wasn't about the corner office. His life wasn't about the big bank account and the family that's real successful. Maybe Job understood that his life wasn't about what he had, but rather that it was about who he had. That that his happiness wasn't rooted in the things of this world, but rather that his happiness was rooted in his relationship with his God. And he said, 
says, listen, the enemy can try to take away all that they want to, and the devil can try to attack me from every side. The waves can come high and low. They can beat against the boat. But one thing the waves can't do is wash away the blood of Jesus Christ. They cannot wash away the relationship that I have with Jesus. And because I've got Jesus, I've got reason for joy. By the way, this isn't wisdom from Job, nor is it wisdom from Eric. It's wisdom from the Lord Jesus Christ. For he says to his disciples to take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth. He goes on to tell a parable about a guy who's got a barn full of goods. And he says, man, if I, if I tear down this barn and I build a bigger barn and I fill that barn filled with goods, then I'll be able to sit down. I'll be able to relax. My, my soul will be merry. I'll be, I'll be at peace in life. I'll have full joy. And Jesus says, thou fool, for tonight thine life shall be required of thee. Then whose things shall those be that thou possesseth? Now that's not Jesus' condemnation against being a disciplined saver or storing up a future. No, no, no. That's not all what Jesus is condemning. Jesus is condemning the fact that once you have all of this stuff, then you'll be able to be happy. That, that once I have a barn full of things, then, once I have this number, then I'll be merry, then I'll be happy, then my soul will be satisfied. He says, no, 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 no. Your soul doesn't be satisfied with stuff. Your soul is satisfied by the Savior. Your soul is not satisfied by the things of this world. It's not satisfied by what you have. It's satisfied by who you have. For at thy presence, the Bible says, is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where's your joy at? Where are you putting your satisfaction in? What do you rely on for joy? I love what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, um, let your conversation not be filled with covetousness. Now we keep talking about that word, but, but what is that word? What is covetousness? Well, I think covetousness is best seen as the example of Alexander wanting to move to Australia whenever things don't go his way, right? Co covetousness is the idea that if I was somewhere else, with someone else, with something else, well, then I'd be happy. That's covetousness. That if I could just have this, or if I could just be here, or if I could just be like him, then I would be more content. Jesus says, don't let your life be filled with that covetousness, but rather be content with such things as you have. Now, a lot of people like to just end the verse there. They like to say, see, God wants you to be content. I know you pulled in with three wheels on your car and a hole in your roof and the snow, well, you don't get snow, but the rain falls and it hits your head when you drive. But you just got to be content with that, man. I mean, that's what God has given you. No, no, no. If you're going to take a verse out of context, take the whole verse out of context, okay? That's not even where the verse ends. He says, um, be content with such things as you have, colon. Now that colon means he's about to list the things you have to be content with. And then the verse continues. It's still not done yet. The verse says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand is that you can be content no matter what circumstance you are in because you have the promise of the presence of God in your life. And as long as you've got the promise of his presence, you have reason for joy, you have reason for contentment, no matter what the situation may be, you can find joy because you've got Jesus. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He responds in realignment. Lord, 
grow me through this. He responds in recognition. Life is not about what I have, it's about who I have. But then he notices finally, he responds in reverence. Now we both, we, we've looked at these two words already tonight, but I just want to draw out the absurdity that, we, that it is that we find them here in this passage. So at the end of verse 20, it says that he worshiped, and at the end of verse 21, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. So both of these, these words are, are, are words found all over the psalm language. They're found all over the, uh, the, 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 the psalms of praise and the psalms of giving thanks to God. Blessed be your name and uh, this worshipful type of music that will worship at the holy hill of Zion. And so Job, in both his word and his deed, is making sure that everybody there understands he's praising the Lord in this storm. He's giving God thanks in the storm. That in the midst of his burden, Job twice intentionally blesses the Lord. In other words, the people that walked out from the house that day and got, you know, all the other people like, how's Job doing? How's he doing? I heard you were there. How's he feeling? I said, well, you know, he, he's, pretty, he's pretty distraught. But I'll tell you one thing. He's not blaming God. No, he's praising God. He's singing God's blessing. That guy is on fire for God. That guy loves his Lord. He is singing forth the praises of God. Now, now listen. I'll be honest tonight so you don't have to be, okay? I can barely remember to praise God for my blessings. Like we, we just drove all the way to Florida, then up to Virginia, then back to, to, to here, to California. And we, we, I mean, the Lord's been so good. Like so good. First of all, we, we passed by some major accidents on, on the road, like major accidents, like accidents that when you see the car and you're just like, ooh, ooh. And you know what? Like maybe once was I like, oh, praise the Lord, that wasn't us. You know? Like the Lord's given us some safety as we've traveled. But also, man, every time I fill up my car with gas, I find myself being like, oh, at least it's a little cheaper this time. Rather than being like, man, God, you've blessed me with, I've never been in want for gas. Not once. I've never been lacking to try to get anywhere. The Lord has blessed us to travel and to get to the places he wants us to go and to preach where he wants me to preach and to have blessings upon the preaching. Like the Lord has just been all over my family these past few months. And I was going to say, I can barely remember to count up those blessings and thank him for them. So that just means that chances are good that when burdens come in my life, well, that my first reaction isn't to praise the Lord. That when the trials come, my first reaction isn't to, to sing forth his praises. And by the way, we're not talking about like, you know, your car breaks down, you get out, you kick the tire. Well, praise the Lord. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like genuine, sincere praise be the name of the Lord. My reaction is not to praise him in the storm or to thank him for the fire. No, no, no. But can I say that's exactly what God would want me to do? God really does want you to sing his blessing in the midst of your burdens. That as the world is crumbling around you, he wants you to rise up and sing a new song. I don't get this. But Paul gets it. Paul, man, Paul gets everything. Paul, Paul's like, Paul's got it down. So when I, when I don't get something, I try to find Paul. 
Like, what, what did Paul say about this? And so, like, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Yeah, yeah, you, you know where I'm going. Let's turn there real quick as we close tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Paul's preaching. He's talking about his testimony. And he starts getting transparent and honest about some of the trials he's faced in life. And he says in verse number uh, uh, 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing, this thorn, I besought the Lord thrice that he might depart from me, that it might depart from me. Okay, so we've got Paul's famous uh, prayer about his thorn in the flesh. Now, man, there's a bunch of discussion on what the thorn in the flesh is, and you can talk to 10 different rabbis in Israel, and you can read 14 different commentators, and they're going to have like 800 different things the thorn in the flesh could be. Like, no joke. People like to speculate what this thorn is. And man, I've read some pretty compelling arguments. I've gone down some rabbit holes a couple of times and ended up just being like, I don't know what that's all about, but man... Bless God, he gave it to you, you know? And I mean, I, I'm like, I've come to the conclusion that if the Lord wanted us to know what the thorn in the flesh was, he would have told us. I think what matters here is that the thorn mattered to Paul. It was a burden for Paul. It hurt Paul. It maybe was given to him to, to humble him, but Satan used it to, to hinder his work and hinder his, men, his, his ministry. And Paul says, man, for three seasons of my life, I sought the Lord that he would remove this burden, that he would remove this trial, that he would take away the thorn. And the Lord answered me. Man, aren't you thankful the Lord answers our prayers? Well, be careful, because you might not like his answer. Because the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for thee. Perfect, man. I mean, how poetic. Again, paint it on a Hobby Lobby sign, sell it to my mom. She will buy it. Like she's, she's, that's got 1999 written all over it. Like that is inspirational. Yeah, if you're not the one with the thorn. But if you're the one with the thorn, my grace is sufficient for thee. It's a little shallow. Yeah, yeah, God, and because, and because your grace is sufficient, you're going to, you know, do the whole taking the thorn out part? Like, is there more? Yeah, there is more. For some reason, it doesn't make the sign. Let's find out why. For my great, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Ew. Ugh. I don't like being weak. I don't like the feeling of inadequacy, Lord. You know what? Just give me my strength, and I'll be all right. Just, just, just give me my, just take the thorn away. Give me my strength. I'll be okay. But that's not how Paul responds. No, Paul, Paul responds with most gladly, therefore. Well, I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. In other words, Paul says, forget the thorn. Man, if that's the result, if your grace is the result, well, forget the thorns. Bring on the persecutions. Bring on the stonings. Bring on the shipwrecks. Bring on the lashings. Bring on the rebukes. Paul, shut up, man. He might hear you. What are you talking about? Like, he says, man, if the result of my weakness is God's strength, then Lord, make me weak. No, Paul, not for me, man. 
I'm glad that's, I'm glad that's good for you. And that's like, like, I know that up here. Like, that, that's the answer. But like, I don't know that here. And for a long portion of my life, I didn't care to ever find out what it meant here. Like, I'm happy with the head knowledge. But in 2019, my wife gave birth to our son, Logan. We had our first son, Mason. We were excited. Mason's awesome. He's wild. He is me as a kid. Now I'm living out what my parents lived, and now I understand. And uh, Mason, we, we love Mason to death. He's, he's awesome. He's six years old. He talks like he's 30. But we, my wife and I, we, we, we loved him. We, we, we love him still. But, uh, but, but, but pretty early on, we're like, uh, okay, he needs someone else to talk to every once in a while. You know, like he, he needs somebody else. He needs a sibling to talk to, you know. And so we started praying that God would give us a, another, another child. And I started asking for another son because I don't like girls. And so I want another son, you know. Mainly because if I had a girl, I knew she'd have my heart, you know. And so she would just get whatever she wanted, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, weddings are a little bit expensive too. And so uh, no thanks on the girl stuff. And so g- g- give me the basketball team, Lord. And, uh, and so we, we started praying for, for another son. And sure enough, the Lord blessed we're going, to have a, we're going to have a child, and it's going to be a boy, and so we're picking out names and trying to find that. You know how it is. And uh, he was due at the end of February in 2019, and so at the beginning of February, I left my wife, and I went to preach a revival in Florida. And uh, it was like three weeks apart, and so we didn't really think of any, anything of it. I was scheduled to preach this meeting long before we ever planned on having a child, and it was never going to be a conflict of issue, and so I flew to the meeting. We had a great meeting. The Lord really worked in that small church in Florida, and uh, the, the, the church was just packed night after night, and there's such a movement of God, such confessing of sin and getting right before God that the pastor wanted to extend the night. He wanted to extend the meeting one more night, and so on Thursday, we met for revival again, and it was just, it was awesome. I mean, the Lord was just moving, and I flew out the next morning into San Diego. It's about two and a half hours from our home in Yuma. My wife picked me up, and we were going to spend some time together just as, as a couple uh, before uh, we entered uh, uh, the uh, parents of two uh, uh, category, you know. And so uh, we, we got dinner that night, and we get back to the hotel, and uh, I go to sleep. I'm tired. I'm on East Coast time, so I'm, I'm tired. I go to sleep. And I don't know what time it was, but my wife eventually woke me up, and she said, uh, Eric, my water broke. And uh, I asked the dumbest questions. You know, I'm like, uh, are, you, are you sure? You know, she's uh, like, yeah, pretty sure. And, and my first thought, you know, it's not, well, how are you? My first thought is like, we don't have insurance in California. We got to get to Arizona. So like, pack up your bags. We got to go, all right? We got we to gotta, we gotta, we gotta go, go, go. And so she's like, uh, she's calling the midwife, making sure that's okay. And the midwife says, yeah, I think it's doable. And the Lord was really good. All the speed limits that night on the way home had been changed to 95. And so we made it, we made it home in great time. And, um, and uh, that was a joke. Uh, but anyways, and, uh, and so we get into Yuma and, um, and uh, we, we wait. We go to the hospital, and we wait, and we wait, and, and finally Logan Matthew Getch is born. Ten fingers, ten toes, and your arms, precious. And uh, I don't think I've ever been in a spot where I had complete peace, and like on a spiritual high and a physical high at the same time, you know? I had this great meeting in Florida, and I'm holding my, 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 my son peaceful. Uh, it's a place I, I would love to say I could always be. The next morning, I woke up to my wife uh, in tears. I said, uh, what, what's wrong? 
My wife is not an emotional person. Like, I mean, she's emotional, but she's not like a, a, a cry, you know. She's not, she's not like in tears all the time. Um, and uh, I'm the emotional one. And so I'm like, uh, if you're crying, something's wrong. So, so what's going on? Tell, tell me what's up. She said, well, the pediatrician came in, and he looked at Logan, and he asked me if we had, um, if we had Down syndrome in our family. Um, I said, well, what did you say? She said, I, I said, I didn't know. So okay, and what did he say? He said he'd be back. That's it? He'd just be back? Yeah, he just he said he'd be back. Well, um, I admittedly didn't know a lot about Down syndrome. In fact, I knew, knew nothing. I knew the term. Uh, knew of a couple of people in my life that had Down syndrome. Um, but I didn't know anything about it. And so instinctively, as soon as it hits your family, now you all of a sudden care, you know. And so you, you pull out your, your phone, and because you've got the world's database on your phone, you can just Google it. Yeah. Talk about wrecking your peace. Try Googling Down syndrome every once in a while. And I guess instinctively, I didn't just, just Google Down syndrome. I Googled, like, struggles or problems with Down syndrome, difficulties with Down syndrome. And the results I found, like, started to just really, like, concern me. Um, 70% or I think 75% of children born with Down syndrome will have some sort of a, a hearing difficulty in their life, whether they'll need hearing aids or tubes or something like that. About 50% of children with Down syndrome will have some sort of a congenital heart defect, and about a, a, a 25% of those will require surgery at some point in their life. Well, like, I don't know a lot about Down syndrome, but I do know that your heart's important. I do know that if there's a defect in the heart, that can be some problematic. And then, then, like, one out of every 50 children born with Down syndrome will have childhood leukemia. Well, now I'm concerned. And then you find articles that you think are really hopeful, but then are, are not, you know? Like, Iceland has eliminated Down syndrome. Like, awesome. Let's get what they got. No, 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 let's not get what they got. No. Then you read that up until, like, the 90s, the average life expectancy of someone with Down syndrome was 26 years old. Well, that ain't too long ago. And that's not a lot of years to live. I became very concerned. I would love to say I responded like Job to this. Not true. What ended up being a about two-month wait on a diagnosis uh, became one of the darkest parts of my life. Uh, in the, the state of transparency, I, um, well, I checked out. I checked out on ministry. I checked out on my family. Uh, I, I was, uh, had no desire to go to church, had no desire to preach. I mean, I still was doing all this stuff, but the, the, the desire was gone. I was in pain. I felt like there was this dark cloud just always around me. And we live in like the sunniest place on earth. And I just couldn't find sunshine. I couldn't find peace. I was constantly anxious. My, my, my heart would, would pound. At, at, and like Christians can sometimes be like the most discouraging people ever, you know? Like uh, they try to say helpful things that are not helpful. Like, well, the Lord gives special kids to special people. Okay, thanks. Um, well, you know, uh, uh, God's trying to teach you something through this, brother. Well, then teach me. 
Why, why does my son have to have something? And I guess like the hardest part for me in the two months was that we knew Logan had Down syndrome. Like his muscle tone was weak. He was not acting like our other son. Like we, we knew, we knew there was a good chance that he had Down syndrome. But we couldn't check any of it. We couldn't get the heart checked on. We couldn't get his blood, uh, his white blood cell count checked on. We couldn't get his thyroid checked. We couldn't do any of that stuff without a diagnosis. And so we're waiting two months for this diagnosis to come in. And we just felt like we weren't able to do anything. We, we weren't able to, to do what we needed to do for our son to... Um, yeah, we, we felt powerless. And on a Sunday morning, we finally got the news. Yes, your son does have Down syndrome. We got the diagnosis. Uh, okay, can we get some stuff scheduled? Yeah, c- come in tomorrow. We'll work it all out. And uh, I was putting my kids in the car seats, and uh, we were driving that eight-minute drive to work or to uh, church. And uh, I think I turned on the first street, and uh, I said, you know what? I need to pray. And so I said, hey, let, let's pray. And uh, I could tell my wife was, was in, in tears. I'm, of course, having a, uh, it, was, it was just a tough time. And so I prayed. I don't know what I prayed. I, I doubt God even heard it. It was like one of those things that you just do because you know you're supposed to do it. And when I said amen, I was just kind of like, yeah, amen. And I'll never forget, my wife who had her hand on my lap, I looked at her, tears in her eyes. I had tears in my eyes. I don't know what she said. I don't, I don't, no idea if these were the exact words or not. But what I heard in the car that morning on the way to church was God's got this. God's got this. And I don't know how else to explain it. But on a red light on 4th Avenue in Yuma, Arizona, the sun began to shine. And I think the only way I can put it is that in that moment, God's grace was sufficient for me. For his strength was made perfect in my weakness. Logan's three years old now. He has been the biggest blessing to my life. I wish everyone could have Logan. Logan's made me a better father. Logan has taught me to intentionally teach my kids to be kind to people regardless of how they look or act. Down syndrome has taught my family how to pray. Down syndrome has brought my family together. I'm a better Christian because of Down syndrome. I'm a better husband because of Down syndrome. My my wife, uh, she does so much for our family. And I fall so short in the help meet that I'm supposed to be. And yet I desire so much for us all to travel together and to do this together because we need each other. Down syndrome's taught me that. Down syndrome has taught me that God values all people, not because of what they can do for you physically or what they can achieve for you, but rather because all people are created in the image of God. So it doesn't matter what someone looks like or acts like or feels like or does. What matters is that they were intrinsically made in the image of God. And so they have value to God. Down syndrome has taught me a lot about God. 
Like Logan's taught me more about God than any theologian ever could. As I watch Logan work to walk, work to fight, like Logan's a fighter. Logan, Logan shows me how to have joy in the midst of struggle and difficulty. I didn't learn that from a theologian. I learned that from Logan. And Logan has brought my family joy. Because Logan teaches us that joy comes from there. Not here. And I tell you all that to say... Man, God's grace is sufficient. Your weakness is his strength. God's grace isn't hypothetical. God's grace isn't for the what ifs. God's grace is for the even ifs. And God's grace doesn't meet you before you need it. It meets you when you need it. And the goal of telling you all this is not so that, like, you know, you feel bad about us. No, no, no. Don't feel bad about us. We are blessed. (laughs) So blessed. I was robbed of joy by the enemy. We are so blessed. The goal in telling you this is not so that you can, like, come up and trump my day with a worse day, right? Like, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you about this. I get it. I know. You've had hardships probably far greater than I have. The goal of this night is not for us to get together and be like, hey, let's all encourage each other in our bad days. No, no, no. The goal of this message is to ask honestly, how are we responding to the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? To ask ourselves honestly, does it look anything like Job? And if not... May I say we've got some work to do tonight. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.